Hello, and welcome to the Master Key Podcast, where we help you unlock your original design so that you can live in the fullness of your destiny. Have you ever felt like the only constant in life is change? Today, we're pulling from our library of past teachings where Dennis shares on transitional prayer. We hope you enjoy part two of this timeless teaching. For more information and other resources, please visit us at masterkey.guide. I'd like to talk for a little while about the reformer anointing. Everybody say reformer anointing. There is a reformer anointing. There are men and women like Martin Luther that God raises up to transition the whole body of Christ from one era to another. From one time in history to another. These um, reformers were all through the Bible. Moses was a reformer. Moses led the children of Israel, who had been slaves for over 400 years in Egypt. Moses transitioned them into the promised land. He was a reformer. He took them from what they were familiar with and had for generations been doing, and he led them on a journey to a new place. That's what a reformer does. Throughout the Bible, there are different reformers. In the history of the church, there are reformers. And one night, I was uh, in the video store, and I saw this movie called Luther. And it is the story of Martin Luther, who's one of the greatest reformers that the church has ever known. And so I felt to get that movie, and I took it home, and I watched it. And it really impacted me. You know, I knew somewhat of the history of Martin Luther and the Reformation. He was the one who identified many of the problems with the theology of the Catholic Church. And he tacked his theses on the door of the church, you know, uh, revealing where the Catholic Church had really departed in many ways from the Word of God. And a tremendous Reformation took place... But what I was shocked to find out in the movie, and it portrays it very graphically, was all of the bloodshed that took place all over Europe as the Lutherans rose up against the Catholics. And 150,000 people were slaughtered in these holy wars over Luther's Reformation. I watched that movie as an intercessor. And the Lord spoke to me and said, if you're going to have a reformer anointing, but you don't do the transitional intercession between this age and this age, then instead of the blood of Jesus atoning for the sin, it will be paid for with the blood of men. This has happened over and over in history because we've had reformers who were not intercessors. Now what if Luther had taken the time and allowed the Lord to let him stand in the gap and be filled with and identified with the sins of the Catholic Church 
And what if he had done the intercession and disarmed all of those strongholds before he tacked his thing on the door of the church? What if the blood of Jesus had been applied to those sins and wrong doctrines and so on, and the strongholds had been disarmed before Martin Luther raised his sword of truth and divided the world? I don't think we would have seen 150,000 dead people in the streets of Europe. Now I have a question. Who was the greatest reformer of all time? What did he reform us from, and what did he bring us into? The old covenant sacrifices and the new Absolutely. Jesus was the greatest reformer this world has ever seen. And he made the biggest transition ever. He pointed to the temple, and he said, in three days, I will tear down that temple, and I will build a new one. And he talked about, you know, the covenant that he would establish in his own blood. And so then he was the greatest reformer, but right in the middle of the transition, what did he do? Look at me. What did he do? He did the intercession. He disarmed the law by fulfilling it himself. And he gave salvation as a free gift to all mankind. And he paid for it with his own blood as the great intercessor. Isn't that amazing? And now all men freely can come to salvation because the great reformer didn't only bring reformation. He brought intercession and he paid for it with his own life. Now, I was sent to Hamilton in 1978, and I had a vision for a New Testament kind of church with five-fold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, home groups, contemporary worship, all this stuff, which was different than the church was used to. And so I showed up like Joseph with this coat of many colors, thinking my brothers would absolutely be delighted. Oh, Joseph has come, and look at the dream he has, and aren't we all excited? Well, that was fairly naive, wasn't it? And I wasn't counting on the religious spirit and the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Jezebel all rising up against me simultaneously, not wanting my vision to come to pass. What did I try to do? I tried to bring reformation, but had I even stood in the gap for one minute about the denominational church and all of their structures that really were not in line with the written word? Had I done any intercession? No, I had not. So I tried to bring reformation without transitional prayer. And how well do you think I made out? Not good. Not good. In fact, the religious establishment rose up. None of them even spoke to me once. But they all circulated letters and had meetings and basically decided I was, you know, not to be trusted. And they basically threw me out of the city, spiritually speaking, 
and treated me like a an outcast never having come to speak to me even once to find out if these rumors were true now see I played into the enemy's hand because I didn't lay down my life in prayer for those I was presuming to bring the truth to what authority did I have to speak into their life none if I had not prayed for Hamilton if I had not stood in the gap if I had not been visited by and touched by the strongholds that I am presuming to speak against I really don't have any authority I didn't understand that greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends so my 27 year journey in Hamilton was about falling on the rock and being broken sorry that's my phone now anyway I had to fall on the rock and be broken and through much trial and um, opposition and persecution finally after losing everything God converted me from a prayerless reformer to an intercessor who now like John the Baptist has learned to pave the way and prepare the way of the Lord in prayer John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and if you recall Elijah was the one who rebuilt the prayer altar and the fire of God fell John the Baptist moved in that spirit and see a reformer without the forerunner anointing of John the Baptist it's only a matter of time before he's thrown in prison and bloodshed will follow reform doesn't come easy now let's look at the denominational model of transition a man by the name of um, let me get this right now Chuck Smith left his mainline denomination to start a group of churches in the US called Calvary Chapel they're here and there throughout the US evangelical moderately spirit filled he left his mainline denomination because he was a reformer and didn't really agree with some of the restrictions of that denomination but my guess is he didn't do the intercession so he transitioned into something new and raised up these places called Calvary chapels well lots of people started to come and God began to do things but it wasn't long before certain people at Calvary Chapel thought hmm seems like the Holy Spirit is not really allowed to move here the way he wants to same thing Chuck Smith had said of his denomination and so they said well let's go over here and start something new John Wimber was one of those he came to Calvary Chapel he said to Chuck Smith uh, why are we not allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our services freely and Chuck's answer was well we don't want to offend the young believers and you know the unbelievers and so let's put what the Holy Spirit does in the back room mm -hmm. 
And John Wimber said, well, why would we want to hide the Holy Spirit in the back room? Let's let the young believers see how the Holy Spirit works. But Chuck didn't want to do that. So what did John do? He left. He had a reformer anointing, and he began what's called the vineyard. Right? Well, do you think John did the intercession for the Calvary Chapel problem? No, he did not. Because what happened with the vineyard not too many years later? John and Carol Arnott were raised up in Toronto. The Holy Spirit began to move. And John Wimber said to John Arnott, we want you to tone it down. And, you know, some of the things that are a bit louder, you know, do in the back room. Well, what did John Arnott say to John Wimber? No, there was some discussion first. What did he say? Why would we hide what the Holy Spirit is doing in the back room. That's right. Have you heard this before? I'm saying in my story, have you heard this answer before? Are you staying with me, people? They're still trying to figure out their marriage they had to pray through. John Wimber said the same thing to John Arnott that Chuck Smith said to him. Well, we don't want to offend the young believers and there's too much controversy, so tone it down and put it in the back room. So John Arnott said, you know, that's not really what we want to do. We want to make room for the Holy Spirit. And see, one generation is visited by the same stronghold of the previous generation unless the cross is planted and someone is crucified with Christ and makes the intercession for the offense of this parent organization. Because the sins of the fathers will do what? Visit the children unless somebody does what? Stands in the gap and remits those sins and gets the blood of Jesus on it so that the children don't have to be visited. Now, uh, these people that study these things say the average life of a denomination used to be about 50 years. 50 years from the time it was born in revival to where it would actually become a dead religious system. Well, throughout the 20th century, that time frame actually shrank to where denominations had a lifespan of about 25 years. 25 years from the birthing of a denomination until it had basically become one more kind of redundant organization. Well, now the time frame is shortened. The last I heard, 15 years between when a movement begins in the fire of God and it actually begins to engage in rigor mortis, stiffness, old wineskin. Doesn't take very long for a new wineskin to become old these days. And if I've learned anything on my journey, if I do not want to birth something new, and have it tainted, polluted, defiled, or bound up by something from the old. And so this is what I had to do. Pastor Doug started asking us in May of, uh, what year are we in, 2000, that would be 2005, in May, 
please come to Oshawa. It took me from May to November, May, June, July, August, September, October, seven months to pray through the stuff that was on me and my family from Hamilton before I would consider coming into this house and letting that bleed into what God is doing here. Because I don't want any of Hamilton's residue following me here. I want to have fresh manna. I want to have new mercies. I want to speak with uh, a fresh breath. And I want to bring life to this house. It took me seven months. Now that's praying through many years of rejection and accusation and disappointment. You talk about forgiveness. You talk about abandonment and suffering outside of the gates and all that stuff that we did. And we kept, you know, posturing ourselves to serve because God had not released us from Hamilton. And finally, I can remember the night I had done the last intercession I needed to do for Hamilton. And God said, it is finished. It is accomplished. You have done and you have paid the last debt of love you owe this city. And now you are free. I felt so free. I felt that my assignment in Hamilton was over. I felt that although some loved me, some rejected me, some received me, some hated me, it didn't matter anymore because God said it is finished. Amen. I covet for every person in this room that God would say to you, it is finished about whatever that past season is or was in your life. And until you hear God say, it is finished, you may still have some transitional prayer to do. And some of you are frustrated about the new season in your life and you can't fully come into your promised land because there's something anchored in the past over there that the enemy still has legal rights. And I am so jealous that every one of you come into the fullness of the new thing God has, but I don't know how to say it. I keep saying it over and over. If you don't pray through your birthright, you might never come into the promised land. A whole generation of Israeli people died in the wilderness because they couldn't get Egypt out of them, even though God got them out of Egypt. A whole generation might die in the wilderness between the, the old way we used to do church and the new way of the kingdom. I don't want to be one of those who dies. And, and I'm trying my best to be like a Joshua or Caleb. I spied out the promised land when I was in my teens. And I'm only now feeling like I'm coming into it. But it's taken a life of intercession. Moses was the great intercessor. And you know what? God came to Moses one day, and he was so fed up with the murmuring and complaining of the Jewish people against God and against Moses, that God said to Moses one day, Hey Moses, how about I wipe out these people, 
and I will raise up a new nation through you. Now that would be a reformation, wouldn't it? But what did Moses say? No, what did he say? If you're going to blot anyone's name out of your book, blot my name out. There's an intercessor for you. He fell on his face and he prostrated himself before God and he did intercession for Israel and this whole nation of murmuring and complaining people ultimately ended up in the promised land because of one intercessor who did the transitional prayer. I bet every season in history where we've seen the people of God cross over, somewhere there was a Moses. Somewhere there was an Anna. Somewhere there was a Nehemiah. Somewhere there was a Paul travailing for his brethren, willing even himself to be accursed and separated from Christ in order that his Jewish brothers might be saved. Where are those kind of intercessors? Where are those who are not afraid of death? Where are those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by loving not their own lives? Hmm. Have I shared with this group the story of Jonathan, the young boy who broke the chair, jumping up and down? Have I shared that story here? Okay, some of you know who Rick Joyner is in Morningstar. Um, there was a lady who is part of the Morningstar ministry, and she had a 8 or 10 year old boy, I don't know how old he was, whose name was Jonathan. And she was doing dishes at the kitchen sink one night, and Jonathan was in the kitchen with her, and he happened to be jumping up and down on the kitchen chair. Well, the chair had, uh, for its seat, caning, you know, those strips of uh, cane, you know, in a crisscross pattern. And Jonathan actually broke through the cane and broke the chair and, you know, created a problem. But the Lord spoke to this mother and said, pay attention, I'm speaking to you. So she's looking at her son, Jonathan. And she's looking at this broken chair, and she's saying, Lord, what are you saying? She couldn't unravel the riddle. And so the next morning, she went to the Morningstar uh, facility, and there she bumped into Steve Thompson, who's one of the prophets there. And she said, Steve, this thing happened with my son Jonathan last night, and the Lord said, pay attention to it. And he broke through the cane seat of the chair, and uh, the Lord said, this is important. And Steve looked at her and said these words, the seat of Cain is broken by the spirit of Jonathan. The seat of Cain is broken by the spirit of Jonathan. Now, who was Cain in the Bible? The first murderer. The first murderer. Who did he murder? His brother Abel. What was his fight with Abel about? God was pleased with Abel's family. Exactly. Whose offering, whose sacrifice, whose worship pleased God? 
Abel's dead. But this is what the fight was about. How many church fights have we had over the matter of worship? What's the right way of sacrificing to God? The spirit of Cain is in the land. The spirit of Cain has no problem murdering a brother while trying to justify the way they worship God. And God said, how can you say you love me whom you have not seen when you cannot even love your brother whom you can see? Don't, don't get in a big fight about worshiping me when you can't even love each other. God said through Steve, the seat of Cain, the, the throne or the authority of that ruling spirit of Cain is broken by the spirit of Jonathan. Now, who was Jonathan in the Bible? David's friend. David's friend. Whose son was Jonathan? Saul's son. Who was Saul? He was the king. Now, who was really the legal heir of the throne? Jonathan was. Jonathan was. But Jonathan so loved David and could see the anointing that was on David to be king, what was Jonathan willing to do? He was willing to give up his throne in order that the greater one, David, who was really in the lineage of Jesus, could sit on the throne. The spirit of Cain, or sorry, the seat of Cain is broken by the spirit of Jonathan. Jonathan had an inheritance from Saul, but Saul's reign was compromised, wasn't it? Saul had consulted with medium. Saul had uh, led with his own wisdom, and he would you know, do things that God didn't tell him to do, and he would not do things that God did tell him to do. And see, the inheritance was tainted, but Jonathan, the legal heir, was willing to surrender his throne so that the greater one, David, could sit on it. Today is the same. The spirit of Cain in the church is willing to murder your brother in order to prove yourself right. Is displaced and broken by the spirit of Jonathan, which is willing to surrender your throne, your seat of authority, and even what rightfully was yours from your father, in order that David, the anointed one, could sit on the throne. I had a seat of authority in Hamilton because I laid down my life, eventually, for 27 years. But God asked me to surrender that, to just give it up, so that the greater David could come and reign in that city. Who's the greater David? Jesus. You know, King David slew Goliath, the greater king, who still sits on David's throne. Jesus has cut the head off of the serpent heaven. And where did he do that? Golgotha. Did you know that Goliath's head, when David cut it off, 
was sent to Jerusalem and put on a stake outside of the wall on a hill, Gaul Goliath. Wow. So, uh, sorry, um, Goliath's head was put there and that hill was called Golgotha or Golgoliath as a foreshadowing of what the greater David would do with his enemy in cutting off his authority over man. Do we need the spirit of Jonathan in the church today? Do we need those who are not who are willing not to love their own lives even unto death? Well, this is my throne, and, and I earned it, and, and I, I have a legal right to sit here, and nobody's going to take it from me. Well, enjoy yourself, but don't expect reformation. Don't expect the new thing to come, because as long as you're seeking to hold on to and to save your own life, or your own reputation, or your own authority, or your own righteousness, or anything of your own, Whatever you seek to save, you will lose. But whatever you're willing to lose, you will find. Now, did Jonathan make it all the way into the new thing? What did he end up doing ultimately? Jonathan. He died with who? His father. When really, had he gone all the way with David, he could have had an inheritance in the new thing. Some of us do what Jonathan did. We surrender what we have to surrender, but we don't make the transition all the way into the new, and we die with our father in the wilderness. Now that's kind of sad, isn't it? Don't be the last one to be serving in Saul's house. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from reigning in Israel? When will you be converted and follow David who has a heart after God? See, there's a false loyalty that remains true to the old thing when God's moved over here and is doing a new thing. Do you want the new Or do you want to stay in the house of your fathers even though it may be decaying and passing away? These are the questions that reformers and those who follow reformers must ask themselves. All right, now let me bring all of this home and then we'll have some questions. The embassy. Is this a house in transition, or is this a house that's interested only in preserving the old? It's a house in transition. Do we have some very gifted visionary leaders here? Yes, we do. Are they transitioning us into new wineskins and new paradigms and new ways of experiencing the kingdom? New for us. Yes, they are. So what is needed between what was and what is becoming? What's needed? Intercession. Intercession. Transitional prayer. That's where you people come in. Because if the prayer is not done, 
I don't care how well-intentioned you are. I don't care how anointed you are. I don't care how accurate your word is. If you do not disarm the seed of Cain, that thing is going to rise up and bite you while you're trying to bring reformation. And some reformers have died horrible deaths because they brought judgment against something that was, but they didn't go to the throne of grace and obtain mercy to help those people in their time of need. Is this making sense? Yes. So now I am bearing my soul to you tonight and I am saying, as a former reformer, how's that for an alliteration? <laughs> as a previous reformer who was prayerless, who brought a lot of damage to the body of Christ, when I watched that Luther movie, it shook me to my core. Because it was like revisiting my youth. Because I had a zeal for God, but I didn't have a prayer life that matched it. I got all excited about taking the arm of God and rushing on the battlefield, but I didn't get very excited about going behind the veil and weeping for my brothers because of their sin. I wasn't willing to bear their sin. My job was to expose it. And devastated lives are testimony to a reformer who was without the ministry of intercession. So was I a leader in the army of God? Yes, I was. But was I taking my place as a priest in the holy place before the throne of grace? No, I was not. And bloodshed, the sins of Cain, were the results. And so I'm in a prayer meeting one day, and the Lord gave a prophecy through my own mouth. And I, and I was speaking to a whole room full of ministers. And I didn't even know what I was saying. I heard myself saying, You have committed the sins of Cain, and you have blood on your hands, and sweat on your brow. And I knew that all of us had labored for years in a field that would not yield its increase because the blood of our brother was crying out from the ground. How do we silence the blood of Abel crying out from the ground? Repent and get what? the blood of Jesus that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. You see, when we do the intercession, then God doesn't hear the blood of Abel anymore, our brother whom we have slain. Whose blood does he hear? Jesus. And what is the blood of Jesus saying to the Father all the time? Forgive them. Forgive them, Father. Forgive them. Forgive them. I paid the debt. I atone. My blood is sufficient. Forgive them, Father. I find no fault in them because they are now washed in my blood. How many of you want the blood of Jesus speaking for you? Then what must be done? Transitional prayer. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. If you'd like to connect or find other resources, please visit us at masterkey.guide.com.